From the team that brings you CNA Newsroom, welcome to Editor's Desk. Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Editor's Desk, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation, usually each week. I'm your host and CNA's Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, CNA's DC Editor, Ed Condon. Ed, hello and thank you. I missed you, boss. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, I have been out now for I'm, – I'm actually still off at the moment. I have been out now for like – it feels like a long time. For a long convalescence, I contracted the virus and uh, and I was – I spent about a week, I guess the week after Thanksgiving, really sick. And uh, and then just as I got better, uh, maybe more – maybe I spent about 10 days really sick. And then just as I – I don't know. I've lost all sense of time and space. And then just as I – got better. My wife got really sick. So we made a swap. I was like starting to get better. And then my, and my wife, you know, the whole time I was kind of in bed and, and just pretty sick, actually the sickest I've ever been. And then, you know, just as I was starting to feel a little bit better, my wife texted me and said, like, I am sick. And, uh, and so we sort of swapped and I went downstairs and took care of the kids. And she, you know, as they might've said in the days of your took to her bed and, um, and then, you know, she has been sick since then. So, which is a little bit more than a week for her, um, and is starting to feel a little bit better, but was herself quite sick. Both of us, the sickest we've ever been with the virus. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, that is my reason why I have not been here. And, uh, and, and suffice it to say that I missed you too. I, I'm sure you did. We were very concerned about you in the newsroom. Uh, at one point, you you did call me after you've been out for just over a week, I think, and you wanted to basically litigate the usage of a comma in a headline. <laughs> I remember that it was wrong. I'm sure it was, and the change eventually <laughs> reflected your strong opinions on this, or at least partially. Uh, but partially, I think I, we came to a compromise. We did. Uh, but anyway, I I communicated with the rest of our excellent editors that you had you had been in touch, that you had you know poked your head out from behind the curtain to litigate this comma. And I took it as a sign of what a great job we must be doing in your absence if, after a week, the only thing you could find fault with was a comma and a headline. And, um, in fact, Michelle suggested to me that perhaps you were just so sick you couldn't read past the headlines and we couldn't even <laughs> get that right. Oh, God. Oh, well, first of all, no comment. Uh, second of all, no, you guys did – our entire team – as I say, I've been out now for like – I don't know. I've lost all sense of time, but I've basically been sick since right after Thanksgiving. And um, I think maybe I worked a couple days after Thanksgiving, but then I was sick. And um, and you guys have done just a fantastic, fantastic job. I, I got to help a little bit with, with one story on a day when I was feeling just a teeny bit better, but that's pretty much it. And you guys have done a fantastic job and our news coverage continues. And you, Ed, um, apart from that comma, apart from that comma, and then the other day I mentioned to you a missing uh, a missing letter in a word in a story, and so I've uh, you know those that has been my the extent of my communication with you. But then you, Ed, um, that's hosted... ordinarily the extent of your communication with me, actually, yeah, apart from recording that's, this podcast. That's true. Um, we are we are colleagues. Um, then you, Ed, um, hosted this show um, last week. You hosted the show last week. I I would dispute um, almost every particular of that statement. I didn't host. And it wasn't this show. Appearing on the editor's desk RSS feed was basically me doing a one-take monologue on some stuff that I would really have liked to have discussed with you. Um, 
barring the thing on communion on the tongue, which, you know, we're not talking yeah, about ever again. That, right? um, but, you know, of things that I thought were newsworthy and hopefully I could draw people's attention to them if they hadn't otherwise seen our coverage. But it was a lonely exper- experience. I, I didn't particularly care for it. Um, you know, I I don't want to, to have... Uh, I don't want to have your chair on this podcast, JD. It's no fun for me. It's even less fun um, when, you know, there's no one to talk to. I just, I felt like what I was, which is a sad and lonely, frustrated journalist in his office just talking at the wall, you know. Well, I, which, I'm You know, sorry. I do that for the rest of the week. I don't need, you know, I don't need to record it for the everyone else's benefit. I, I guess, Ed, I'm sorry that my family's sickness had this profound um, impact on you. I'm sorry for the way in which we inconvenienced you by succumbing to the global pandemic. I, I, if I had known, if I if I had known that it would have been an inconvenience to you, I would have worn even more masks and washed my hands even more frequently and um, done. I, I don't know what what should I have been doing. I mean, I I have been pretty careful about not getting the pandemic, not getting the pandemic, not getting the the virus. And, uh, and and yet I got it, and I shouldn't be surprised because more and more people are getting it. In fact, in my state of Colorado, I think. One in twenty-two Coloradans has had the virus, so you know I, I suppose I shouldn't be, or something like that. So I shouldn't be all that surprised, but um, but I'm I'm sorry that I inconvenienced you, and 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 you've not gotten the the, the virus. So what ought I had to have done, Ed? I I don't know. I I don't know. I I'm I'm glad that you have recovered. I'm glad that your family is seemingly on the mend, and of course we've been praying for you. Thank you. Uh, I yeah. I in our house we do not seem to have got the Rona. Um, I mean, neither one of us have felt bad uh, beyond sort of you know general seasonal afflictions. So I don't know. I you know, but I mean, isn't this the whole point? Isn't this the reason why people freak out about pandemics? Is you just you just don't know. You can do everything and still get it. You can do nothing and not get it. You can, you know. Not get it. Or the interesting thing is you can get it and not be sick or you can get it and be very, very sick. And and that's why, I mean, truthfully, my wife and I were talking about this last night and she's getting better. She's still sick. I mean, she's still quite sick, but she's getting better. But we were, we were talking about this last night. We, we are genuinely grateful to God that we um, are, fi- like, although this is the sickest that either of us have ever been, um, and although both of us were at, at various points thinking maybe we should go to the hospital, I know you were sort of urging me at a certain point to go to the hospital. Um, neither one of us were hospitalized, and um, neither and you know both of us are are, are recovering. And and I and I'm genuinely grateful to God for this for that because this is um, you know the I'm finding hearing more and more frequently about people who are not. Uh, people who otherwise seemingly are in good health who are uh, afflicted to the point of intubation or even to death. So we're very grateful, grateful to God for that. And it is, it is a mystery, isn't it, buddy? That's, you know, that's what, that's what we fear is the unknown. Indeed. Indeed. I'll tell you what I'm curious about is, uh, and so we can stop talking about my, my convalescence after this, but I am curious of whether, uh, whether we'll have long-term effects. So like I still find myself getting, winded and tired um, with more frequency than, I mean, I'm portly, so I'm always getting winded and tired, but I find myself getting winded and tired with more frequency than I ordinarily do and needing to like, and just the fatigue and a lot of people who have had it say the fatigue is a lasting symptom. So I'm sort of curious, but I'm, 
I feel a little bit let down uh, with with regard to one thing, and it's this. Um, I have long been intrigued by the idea of losing all sense of taste and smell. As long as I've been hearing about it, I've been intrigued by that, and uh, and um, and I didn't. I have not. I, there were like a, a couple days where everything tasted super salty to me, but I could still taste and I could still smell things. And my wife has lost all sense of taste and smell, and I'm intrigued by that. And I keep sort of asking her what it's like, and she says it's not at all awesome, but. It just seems like such such a. Um, it seems like it would be such an unusual experience that I was. I've been intrigued by the idea, and yet I did not have that particular. Oh, show. that sounds horrible to me. I have I have family members who've who've had the had the Rona, and part of the long COVID experience is, uh, the in some cases they still haven't gotten back their senses of taste or smell, and that I mean it literally is the savor of life taken out of it. I you know yeah, I, it, it sounds I'm horrible. Just curious, isn't it? Well, you know, I my wife has been sort of trying to figure out what to eat because, you know, if you have no sense of taste and smell, then you're, uh, on the one hand, you might think, well, only eat the most healthy things. But on the other hand, she pointed out that um, texture has has become of increased import to her. So things which she might otherwise enjoy the taste of, but has no time for the texture of, like a banana, for example. She she doesn't she likes the taste of a banana, but she doesn't like the texture of a banana. So now, why would she eat a banana? So um, so she's been sort of. Just space family Robinson, just vitamin tablets. And- right, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Or that Forster story, the machine stops. Anyway, um, okay. I missed a lot of things, and we can't talk about all of them, and you talked about some of them um, last week, I'm told, uh, which, by the way, I got a lot of compliments on your single show, um, and and there are listeners now who think you should launch your own show all by yourself without me, which, uh, you know, may, go ahead and do, you know, whatever. I think you should put out a solo album if that's what you want to do. Um, but anyway, I missed a lot of things. We can't talk about all of them. But The bassist never the things- puts out a solo album, J.D. That's just not how it works. <laughs> but one of the things that, happen- that has happened is... Um, uh, with is a, is a sort of emerging jurisprudence on the question of church closures uh, dur- uh, with regard to coronavirus restrictions. Is that right, Ed? That is correct. Um, ever since the Diocese of Brooklyn, in the case Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus State of New York, uh, won at the Supreme Court, in which the uh, in which the court found that, in their own words, even in a pandemic, the Constitution still applies. Right. Uh, that basically the state governments cannot place restrictions on religious institutions like churches and activities like public worship um, that are seemingly deliberately and unnecessarily and certainly without basis or evidence more onerous and more burdensome than are applied to other gatherings of similar size. And, you know, a lot has been made in different jurisdictions, including, for example, in New York, about uh, the designation or not of churches as essential services or businesses. And, you know, there's no shortage of examples of jurisdictions in which churches cannot hold more than, for example, a hard cap of 50 people, regardless of the size of the building, that there's no proportionality to the size of the building, but only to uh, right. only to a strict headcount, whereas other institutions like gyms, uh, casinos, libraries, uh, you know, big box stores, things like that, can can basically pack people in as normal. And mm-hmm. that this is just, you know, it's it's not tenable. And the Supreme Court has ruled this way in Brooklyn. And what's been interesting uh, in the last couple of weeks is the vigor with which the Supreme Court is pursuing the application of this case. Now, ordinarily, uh, you would expect the ruling to just sort of trickle down to see lower level courts uh, adopted and put it in place and, you know, 
the, the decisions of the Supreme Court sort of, you know, shake out through the system that way. But the first what happened was California had similar measures struck down uh, on an appeal from another, uh, I don't think it was a Catholic church. And then last week, the governor of Colorado reclassified churches and, you know, worship buildings as essential services so that uh, restrictions he'd placed and which had been appealed uh, through the legal system would no longer apply. And basically, he then petitioned the Supreme Court to drop the case that uh, these churches had asked the Supreme Court to enforce the provisions of Brooklyn Diocese versus State of New York uh, against the state of Colorado. And he said, look, this is a moot case now. I've changed it. You know, they're not suffering any injury. They don't need any relief. You know, you can let this one go. But the court didn't. Today, they they went ahead and did it anyway and vacated the the lower court's decision upholding the Colorado governor's restrictions and basically closed the door on him, you know, revisiting his decision. And we've seen other lawsuits pending in some places. The Archdiocese of Washington here uh, has yeah. announced that they are suing the District of Columbia for their 50-person hard cap, which is, you know, I, I don't want to get too far into this, but I mean, the mendacity of this is just striking. The, the number of things you can do in Washington, D.C., uh, in a building with more than 50 people, but you can't go to church is ridiculous. And well, that's true, and it's been true. What's interesting in a certain way is, uh, is that, um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, that has been the case for quite some time, and um, and it's interesting to see now the floodgates being opened for the Archdiocese of Washington to be suing now when they're all but assured of a victory, and and probably we'll see more. But it's sort of like, um, but it's interesting because you're right. I mean, uh, uh, one should be gl- glad and grateful that they're doing it, and at the same time, um, what we didn't see was sort of a mass movement of dioceses all making uncertain lawsuits, but um, one diocese sort of pioneering it, getting a Supreme Court victory, and now uh, we're beginning to see litigation from other places, which is a a different thing in some ways, isn't it? It is, and I'm somewhat struck by this. I find it interesting that, uh, you know, again, I'm I'm very glad that the Archdiocese of Washington has has lodged the suit with the District Court for the District of Columbia. I think they're absolutely going to win. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But it has nevertheless been interesting to see that, for example, the California case was not brought by, um, you know, a, a Catholic diocese. Which, you know, why not? You know, they've been subject to all kinds of punitive restrictions for months. And I find it interesting that, you know, it was left to, you know, the comparably small Diocese of Brooklyn to fight this fight on its own. When what I would have expected to see is a concerted effort uh, on the part of major dioceses in different jurisdictions across the country acting in concert, I would have expected to see, I don't know, maybe the USCCB weighing in with opinions and, you know, amicus briefs on behalf of different dioceses, things like that. Uh, and we haven't. And and I, I think it's a missed opportunity. And, you know, I mean, let's be clear. No one's saying that the churches should be open for a free-for-all here, that, you know, there have been, and this is part of the Diocese of Brooklyn's case, and remains part of the Archdiocese of Washington's case in court is that they are taking extraordinarily careful measures to ensure that mass right. can be said and people can right. come to church and minimize the risk of spreading the virus. Right. That right. you know, we're talking about social distancing, we're talking about face coverings, we're talking about, you know, maximum attendance linked to, you know, a, a, a minority percentage of the capacity of the building. You know, all of those things. So this is not a question of just saying churches should be allowed to do whatever they want. It's that churches should not be singled out for special treatment and say, you know, it's fine to go to the Maryland Live Casino and bet your house on the craps table, but you can't go to church. That, I mean, it, yeah. it's just nonsensical. It is, in fact, a, a, an attempt, I would argue, 
to advance exactly what the categorizations brought in by many of these jurisdictions have said, which is that um, it wants to cultivate and establish in law that religion is not essential, that religion is well, a secondary activity that doesn't need protection. The Supreme Court fundamentally agreed with you. Um, I would say that um, while I agree with you and while I think, you know, well, I think now we'll see more litigation in places where we're seeing this imposition because I think now there will be some pressure or expectation on bishops for this litigation. Um, in addition to the Diocese of Brooklyn being the first to sort of um, in, uh, initiate or, or get as far as a victory at, uh, on um, on litigation with the Supreme Court, which sets a precedent uh, um and the Diocese of Brooklyn's victory is actually sort of a partial victory in that the Supreme Court basically upheld their petition while a lawsuit continues. Um, but they've certainly signaled what would happen if that lawsuit got back to the Supreme Court on appeal. So, I mean, it, it fundamentally gave the gave the, um, the, it gave the disposition of, it, of an anticipated precedent. Right, right exactly. But I, I think it's important to recognize that, that the, di- the dioceses that did – uh, that pushed back in administrative ways or in public relations ways. You know, yes, the Diocese of Brooklyn had this litigation path. Um, the, what has one of the sort of I think underseen stories of the last perhaps quarter um, is uh, is the pushback of the Archdiocese of San Francisco on the owner's restrictions of the city of San Francisco um, on uh, indoor mass attendance, and, and that pushback um, was primarily a matter of. Um, of public relations. I mean, it, it, we, you, we covered this, so I, I know you saw it. That pushback was um, the archbishop processing through the streets with the Blessed Sacrament in a way that was safe and followed the protocols and all of those things, but processing through the streets with the Blessed Sacrament and then in a certain way making, uh, if not a mockery, highlighting the absurdity of, of, the, of San Francisco city regulations. So you could only have 10 people at an outdoor, uh, you couldn't have indoor masses and you could only have 10 people at an outdoor mass. So the archbishop arranged to have um, uh, uh, like 10 or 12 or 15 outdoor masses in the same cathedral plaza at the same time, all of them observing social distance in order to demonstrate the, the silliness of, um, uh, of the regulation and, uh, and continue to do those kinds of things, even while the city was, uh, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, the city was basically um, spying on churches to ensure, you know, sending sort of emissaries into churches to ensure that they were complying, not law enforcement agents, but bureaucrats into cities to ensure that they were complying, into churches to ensure that they were complying. And even while the city was doing things like opening its own, uh, the gyms owned by the, operated by the police department and city hall while keeping privately owned gyms closed. Um, and, 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 and Nancy other things Pelosi got to go to mass. Outlandish. What's that? Nancy Pelosi got to go to mass. Nancy Pelosi did get to go to mass, she said. and Indoor and, uh, with <laughs> indoor uh, mass. well above yes. a head cap. And she walked it back after we pointed out that this is what she had said. Right. After Nancy Pelosi said that she did something that was against the rules in San Francisco, uh, CNA asked her when and where, and maybe we could understand uh, if a church was breaking the rules. And then she said she couldn't couldn't remember. So I, I don't know what the deal was there. Um, I think it's, but, I think given her hairdressing habits, it's, it's pretty clear to me what went on there, which is uh, <laughs> she just did whatever the heck she wanted. And uh, when she got caught, she offered an alternative version of events. The um, the diocese of Madison also pushed back on, um, on regulations. If you, if you recall that. I do. Um, yeah. And so, and so there have been other pushbacks, but now that we have a, a now that we have, what is essentially a precedent. It, there's a technical distinction. But now that we have what is essentially a precedent, I think we'll see more places like the Archdiocese of Washington is doing sort of now filing litigation with a relatively high expectation of positive resolution. And, and I'm glad. 
Yeah, sure. Speaking of the Archdiocese of Washington in the, the nation in which we live, um, let's sort of talk about, uh, 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 and again, I missed a lot of things, but, you know, the, 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 the nation's fraught political situation remains uh, um, an operative reality uh, for us. Um, the Electoral College, we're recording this on Tuesday, the 15th, um, and I'm not sure what day we'll publish it, but potentially Tuesday, the 15th, or maybe Wednesday. But we are, uh, uh, the, the Electoral College voted yesterday to formally uh, elect um, Joe Biden to the presidency of the United States of America. The uh, The current president of the United States is um, tweeting things that um, are continuing to allege uh, not only election fraud, which I think there is the possibility of election fraud in some places, although that doesn't seem to, courts don't think that has affected the outcome of the election. Um, but the president has continued to tweet things that suggest that the Georgia Secretary of State and the uh, governor of Georgia uh, will be going to jail as a result of his perception of their um, failure to act in the way that he would have wished for them to have acted with regard to elections. So our, our nation's political situation, suffice it to say, remains fraught and um in our country remains for those who are still sort of checked into that particular line of reality for that to that particular plot line of 2020 um uh uh the nation remains divided surprised you know markedly divided i think something some data that i saw said something like 70 percent of people who identify as republicans think that the election was uh, I think that the election was the subject of massive fraud or um, so so the nation remains divided uh, over this issue and obviously very few Democrats would feel that way so um, uh, so the nation remains divided and there remains division in the church over this as well I yes this is this is not going to go away I think you know we've had the the Senate majority leader Mitch McConnell has officially recognized Biden as the president-elect um, I did, did you get I got this on my phone I guess it was last night um, you know it was one of those unstoppable stupid Apple news alerts like I need Apple to tell me what's newsworthy um, but anyway one of those things that you can't stop your phone from doing saying the electoral college no I might turned off but anyway I thought the, I keep trying to turn mine off they won't go off well, anyway it flashed up it said the electoral college had you know officially elected Joe Biden he'd gotten more than 270 electoral college votes and all this stuff and I thought this is it is news that this is news, that this is where we are. It's something that would have passed, I, I think, without being uh, completely unnoticed. Most people have no idea, like about wh when the electoral college does the voting and stuff like that. But this year was big news. This year is big um, news, and it will be big news again uh, in January, I suppose, when Congress the House of Representatives confirms the, the yeah. election of the electoral. Well, and college. I think we can probably safely say that at least one member of the House of Representatives will. Will challenge and that won't pass, you know, sort of unanimous by unanimous consent. It will have to be debated and formally voted on. And you know, the the ordinary has become extraordinarily contentious, and that's it has been. That's not great for the state of uh, our society or country, um, at least for political stability. But I will say before we move on, well, not just political that, stability for cultural stability. First, cultural and social stability. I, I agree, which is born of those things. But before we move on to that, I will say, in a very, in, in a certain sense, I was very glad to see that the Electoral College was news um, because I am a, a big believer in the importance of the Electoral College. And I was glad to see that it was sort of recognized as the thing by which the president is elected. And I actually hold, 
I hold, uh, which I mean, it's it's not that I hold it; it's true. It is fundamentally true that it is uh, it is up to the states to decide how it is that they, um, how it is that they send people to the electoral college, right? That it is, it's you know, my understanding pure, of the constitutional provision that it is up to the state legislatures. Although state legislatures in many places have passed their own legislation giving right, the power exactly. to certify the election to the governor, which is why states were allowed to have these. Um, these uh, uh, these um, provisions, these ballot provisions, saying that they would give their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. Um, but the national popular vote is is um, is an interesting bit of you know kind of trivia. But it is not it's it's nothing legally or juridically. Um, Nor save should for it the be. fact, that, right? Save for the fact that these states have decided that they wish to sort of draw it up into their own legislation and say that something called the national popular vote would be the thing by which they chose their... No, I, 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 national popular democracy is a recipe for majoritarian tyranny. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I concur. Yeah, I concur. Four square I, against I, yeah. it. No way. Love me some electoral college. For sure. Definitely. Yeah, well, I mean, the only way to have... A, the only way to have... A country this popular, the only way to have a country this populous and this geographically and sort of culturally diverse, which functions, is to sort of recognize the constituent elements of it thereof. Now, e- even with that recognition, oh, hold for one moment, please. Hey, buddy, Dad's recording right now. Are we gonna get a cameo? <laughs> oh, there's your sword. Oh, what else did you bring, Davy? Can you say hi into my phone? <laughs> what did you bring here to my office? Oh, a balloon? Two lightsabers. Two lightsabers and... What else? I guess a and some for you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. We have to place Listen, Dad is going to do this recording. I'm talking to my friend Ed. I'm going to do this recording, and then I will be ready to play. Okay. I did not lock my office door. <laughs> that was absolutely delightful. Anyhow, the Electoral College. You are going to need a big... If you're going to have a country this big, you're going to need to recognize the constituent elements of it and recognize the political diversity thereof. And the, that's what the Electoral College aspires to do. And even with the Electoral College, you can only get so far, as we can see by this moment in history. Yep. Um, <laughs> so I'll tell you what annoys me right now, J.D. Diga me. Yeah, because that's really, you know... That's what everyone wants to talk about. What's annoying me? <laughs> that that at least should be the focus. Is yeah. we we're not in a pretty place right now, uh, politically, socially, culturally. It's not great. So what I would be looking for is the church, and by the church I mean the hierarchy of the church, to be expressing with with clarity and vision um, an authentic Catholic uh, pitch. To American society, not necessarily, you know, to proselytize, but to sort of say, here is a vision of how we as a as a community, um, not just of the faithful, but as a wider community and society can live and love and function. And I'm not hearing that terribly clearly. Now, I know there are there are some I want to be clear. I'm not saying there's an absence of any kind of leadership. There are some bishops I know who have been doing so very well in their own diocese. But what we lack is a sort of clarion voice on the national stage speaking for the Catholic um, 
corner of society, which I, I would really like right now. I think there's a lot that can be said for, uh, you know, for and by a church that is truly Catholic, big C and small C, that, you know, we, we are a, a family of faith. And I think that there has been, and we, we talked about this in the podcast a while ago before the pandemic, that you were beginning to see political divisions appear as an ordinary feature of Catholic parochial life. And, you know, to an extent, this has become less of a pressing concern because parish life, as we've known it, has basically been suspended over the course of coronavirus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this is all going to be waiting for us when we come back, for sure. Mm -hmm. And in many respects, it will only get worse because people are not brought into daily physical contact or weekly physical contact with people outside of their sort of self-selecting. Self-selecting group. That's exactly right. Mm Self-selecting online group, which is even more, Mm -hmm. I'd argue, difficult and problematic. Right. And so what we need is someone who's able to actually stand up and say, no, 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 hang on. Here's what a Catholic vision of our society and culture looks like right now. And and we haven't got someone who's sort of picking up that mantle to speak uh, from, I don't want to say the center because the center sounds like a sort of wishy-washy, not one thing or the other. And that's not what I mean What at about all. from the heart of the church? From what the heart of the, exactly, from the heart, from the heart of, the of the church. And I mean, we've had, and this is not to say that there haven't been bishops who have been taking on national political issues uh, for themselves, uh, Archbishop, now Cardinal Wilton Gregory in Washington made, uh, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast because I think this was right when you went down, um, made his own pitch uh, to incoming President Joe Biden saying, you know, he's he's looking forward to working with him and dialoguing with him right. and all of that stuff. And he's not going to deny Joe Biden communion despite the fact that Joe Biden is is absolutely persevering in manifest is absolutely persevering in manifest great sin and the church has certain medicinal remedies for the good of joe biden and for the church at large that wilson gregory has said i am not going to apply because of the church on this issue yes because cardinal gregory has said that would be like going in with a gun on the table that's his image um and that's a shame because i think what this what this proposes to a lot of catholics what this will look like to a lot of catholics is a kind of moral equivocation that, well, if you agree with the church on some issues, which Biden does, uh, he's much closer, for example, to the church and the bishops' conference on issues like immigration, on opposition to the death penalty, on uh, things like that, than is, for example, Donald Trump. Then it doesn't matter if you're fundamentally opposed to the church's teaching on the grave immorality of the taking of innocent human life and abortion. And there is no moral equivocation here. The church doesn't say either or, or if you reach a sort of critical mass or, you know, this isn't, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't a bingo card. This is the, this is the teaching of the church. You have to take it all. It's all important and it all matters. And if you are suggesting, as I would argue this action by Cardinal Gregory does, that it's possible to be a Catholic, to present oneself as a Catholic publicly, to present oneself at mass uh, as a Catholic and have no spiritual harm done to yourself by being in a situation of manifest grace. And it effectively suggests to other Catholics, well, I too can do and say and believe these things and it won't do me any harm. And it will. Yeah. And that right. is a yeah. big problem for me. And then on the other well, side. on the other side of the coin. On the yeah, other so side of that, the coin. And then on the other side of the coin. I'm going to let you finish. You put your finger up. Okay. On the other side well, of the coin. Well, just because it is, I want to make it clear. I'm not, I, I'm no, I, frustrated I, I, no, by both I, sides no. here. 
you're frustrated. Well, I'm frustrated that there are both. That there, exactly. I'm frustrated that the moment we're in is a moment of both sides. But the, and this is the so malice. What's this happening is, on the other side of the coin? And then, yeah. can, and what's then happening on the other side of the coin in. is, did you were you able to rouse yourself from your sick bed and offer your attention to the Jericho? March rally. I did, I did pay attention to Saturday's Jericho March, which was a gathering of people in in Washington D.C. on Saturday, fundamentally supporting the movement that has um, taken the moniker "Stop the Steal." People who are alleged that the election has been stolen from President Trump and that they need to stop the steal. So much to say that there were people at the Jericho March um, who were saying that the that the fight for pre- the president, the legitimacy of President Trump's. Um, uh, um, Re-election may well be something that needs to be defended with actual physical violence. You know that the, that there may need to be actual sort of physical conflict to defend the what what they perceive to be the legitimacy of the election. So that was the thing that was going on. And in the context of that, I did notice what you want to talk about. Yeah, that there were several Catholic clergy, including two bishops, in in attendance either physically or virtually. The priests attended in person, and the bishops attended virtually. And this, I mean, okay, I, w- I want to be clear uh, about what happened because I watched this and we can talk for hours about the the guys who weren't Catholic bishops and what they said because that was eye-opening for me. I, I talked to a number of people over the weekend because I just couldn't believe what I was watching and hearing, uh, not just from a sort of political conspiracy theorist standpoint, but from a sort of tone of uh, – tone of the entire event and you know this apparently is a lot of it is what is normal in sort of evangelical american conservative christianity well maybe i grew up in american evangelical christianity and um and it was not normal at that point to talk about taking up arms no no no. i don't mean in terms of political content i just mean in terms of tone and delivery and uh the sort of the rhetoric of prayer which was not something i had a lot of experience with so i um, but anyway, we could talk about that, which I think would be interesting. But for me, I want to be clear, uh, neither of the two bishops who were Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, uh, who apparently was unable to bestir himself to be interviewed for the McCarrick Report, a subject which you know is one of the reasons why he came to international prominence in the first place, mm-hmm. but he was able to make it for a video link to a political rally in Washington, D.C. Um, now, I want to be clear. Vigano didn't say the election was stop the steal. Stop the right. steal. He didn't say the election was stolen by Donald Trump or stolen for. But he did say Trump. you're here in support of a battle between light and darkness. Which and is he did pray that the. Hang on, I don't want to. I don't want to misquote him because again, precision matters. Uh, that he did offer a prayer that the truth will triumph over lies, justice over abuse and fraud, and that the walls of the deep state behind which evil is barricaded will come crashing. Down. So supporting the proposition that the election was won by Joe Biden as a result of widespread election I would fraud. say that is the clear implication. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. a- alongside that, you had um, an interesting appearance by Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler in, in Texas. Uh, I say it was an interesting appearance because he didn't actually address the crowd uh, physically or rhetorically that the, the, he was doing it by video. And it was a sort of he, over his shoulder almost. Uh, as Bishop Strickland was basically leading a prayer. So he didn't actually turn to camera and address the crowd. Right, he right, was leading a right. prayer, and the content of the prayer was, you know, perfectly fine. There was nothing objectionable in it. But for me, the fact that two Catholic bishops were sharing a platform with people who were promoting, uh, I, I would say, extremely tenuous uh, theories about the election, who were... And- 
and not just extremely tenuous theories about the election, but at a rally in which a, 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 a certain kind of uh, call to arms, or at least the rhetoric of a genuine call to arms with regard to the you know, a, the rhetoric of a genuine called arms, regardless of how serious it was or whether it was just a rhetorical device, which I think probably I don't think any of those people were actually planning to to, to engage in physical combat, but not just a it was to be clear, it was not just a place of political rhetoric. It was a place where the political rhetoric had gone as far as to suggest that this might be the beginning of an American civil war. No, not just an American civil war. What one of the speakers said uh, was that God rose up Donald Trump their formulation, their grammatical formulation, not mine. God rose up Donald Trump to stand against the enemy, and this is the beginning of the great revival before the Antichrist comes. So putting the whole thing into apocalyptic, in apocalyptic. Yeah, well, and so this is the other thing, is several of the speakers that I saw were saying that they knew Donald Trump had won the election because they'd received a revelation from God that he had won the election. Right, that the God had told them that. In fact, some of them, I think, had said that they hadn't been actually following the particulars of the various issues of litigation. And, And look, I think... I, I think it's clear that there are some places in which um, th- there is the real possibility of some fraud, not enough fraud, I think, to have outcome to affect the oh, outcome sure. of the election, but the possibility of real electoral anomalies that need to be addressed for the sake of free and fair elections, especially at the local level where smaller numbers make bigger difference and things like that. But the the apocalyptic language and then people who were saying, yes, I had this private revelation about that and uh, I'm not following the cases too closely and I don't need to. But I can have confidence about this because the Lord told me that Donald Trump won the election. So this is the thing that is specifically I find very troubling, that there are two Catholic bishops who shared a platform with people, not so much about the the ins and outs of you know uh, election conspiracy theories, which, again, I think it's deeply, deeply unhelpful and problematic to share a platform with people like that because it seems to lend the credibility of the church and the bishops in this case to these other speakers. But when they're making specific theological truth claims about – Donald Trump being the Lord's chosen second term president by divine revelation. I mean, this is a problem. You can't have the Catholic hierarchy standing next to this. Well, and as you say, the problem is a twofold problem or the problem is a a structural problem of the moment where there is uh, there are those who say uh, I do not intend to observe the law of the church with regard to. Ecclesial communion and abortion, which is our national scourge, and then there are those who are giving credence to this division. So, so what we see is the bifurcation of a few bishops. I, the, the vast majority of bishops are not immersing themselves in this at all, and probably trying very hard to avoid it, like the plague, actually. Um, but so that, Careful. so therefore, you have. Let's not oh, talk right, about the plague. Um, therefore, oh, hey man, I'm I'm a plague survivor. <laughs> oh, that's uh, right. You've say. got your past now. You're allowed to make right. Ex- exactly. That's plague is our word, Ed. Um, <laughs> Wow, you're punchy. Therefore, trying to avoid it like 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 the virus, and uh, and uh, you know the vast majority of bishops are just not getting into this at all, and so therefore the polarized voices on two edges of an extremely extremely polarized American and extremely polarized American political moment, extremely polarized. Um, are the voices which have the most play. And that leads to not only an inconsistent sort of witness of the church, but an inconsistent witness for the church. And here's what I mean by that. You've said you would like a voice saying this is a Catholic approach to politics and those, you know, this is a Catholic vision for a just and flourishing society. I'd like that too. But I'd also like as a Catholic, I I, I also would like as a Catholic the voice that says, JD, the, the pastoral voice, the Episcopal voice, which has the charism of prophecy. You know, a bishop has a, has the charism of teaching in a way that I don't and you don't and even his priests don't. A bishop is 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 
consecrated, anointed to be a teacher in a way that I believe is real and that matters. And I, I would like for bishops to be saying to me, J.D., in this extremely polarized moment where you, you yourself are trying to make sense of this, you know, of what's happening um, politically and sociologically and sociopolitically in our country, this is how a Catholic comports himself and this is how a Catholic um, these are the these are these are the uh, the unchanging doctrinal truths by which a Catholic makes judgments about those things, and also these are the ways by which a Catholic. Th- this is the guidance which a Catholic needs to maintain a healthy interior life at this moment. I I am looking for that. I'm genuinely looking for the kind of pastoral guidance that is not um, cozying up to one side or another of an extremely divided political reality, which is what I see happening, the cozying. Um, I'm looking for something which stands apart from that and says, hey, listen, this, this, these things are getting crazy. Let's remember that we're passing through this country. We're citizens of heaven. And let's remember to be looking for the return of the Lord. And here are some other things that we can be thinking about knowing, doing, and taking into our interior lives at this moment because our primary mission is to know, love, and glorify God, and uh, and not to um, to be so immersed in in this increasingly div- divisive political reality. I, I'm looking for bishops to teach me how to do that. To be perfectly honest, and I don't just want to say I, I hate when people are just like, "Where are the bishops? Where are the bishops?" But um, but I think it's true that what we're seeing is um, bishops who are not sure how to handle this. I mean, the language from the meeting of the conference in November was, hey, we have a Catholic who dissents from, we have a new president, and he's a Catholic who dissents from the teaching of the church on critical issues and still presents himself as a Catholic in good standing. And that presents really difficult issues for us, so we're going to make a committee. Now, I'm glad that they're going to make a committee, but that's like kind of like, hey, everybody, we have a challenge, so we're going to make a committee. Um, you know, that's not... A committee is not going to make the same kind of impact as the image of Joe Biden as president lining up for communion in St. Matthew's Cathedral. Well, and sort of think about, imagine if Churchill said, you know, we'll form a committee on the beaches, we'll form a committee at the, you know, on the cliffs, but, you know, no, um, you know, um, sort of a Churchillian model of leadership, and maybe I'm saying that because I was watching The Crown while I was sick, but a Churchillian model of leadership would not have been one making deference to a committee at a critical moment. And, and I'm not citing any particular bishop on that. But but there, there seems to be those bishops who are saying, hey, this is going to be really tricky. We've got to figure it out. And I'm glad that they want to figure it out. Then there seem to be those bishops who say, no, I'm going to be, you know, I, I'm not going to raise this vitally important issue, abortion or national scourge, because I want to find common ground on other issues, which is fundamentally sort of cozying up to, to one political side. And then there are bishops who are showing up at a stop the steel rally, which is a cozying up to the other side. And again, I don't like to just be the where the bishops guys, but I can't, I can't, Ed, and you can't replace or stand in for the sacred ministry of a bishop, especially at a especially at a politically volatile moment, and so I think it's fair to say, at the very least, we're praying for the 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 um, the rising up. To, to, to borrow that language, we're praying for the emergence of a prophet for us to speak to us of where we should go yeah. in this moment. And and again, I want to be clear. I know there are some bishops who are maybe even some of them will be listening to this podcast who's like, "Hey, I'm preaching on this on Sunday." And I want to be clear. I absolutely, I'm grateful to them for so doing. Um, But make a bigger deal of it. We need voices. There is a reason why Archbishop Vigano continues to command headlines. It is because he speaks to difficult and volatile issues without reservation. 
And I would argue he does so in an unhelpful way. There's a reason why Vigano has the platform that he has. There's a reason why Father James Martin has the platform that he has. There's a reason why uh, certain YouTubers have the platform that they have. There's a reason, frankly, why we have the platform that we have. And that is because people, all people, including ourselves, are looking for... um, are looking to understand what's happening in the world through the light of faith. And I'm glad that we can contribute to that. And I'm glad that people listen to us. And I hope listeners that we're helping you in some way to grow in the life of faith. But it it is nevertheless true that we do not have the charisms that come with Episcopal consecration. And at this moment, it it seems to me, and it seems to you, I think all the more vital that we have that kind of um, uh, leadership that is not... um, leadership that is oriented towards our spiritual lives and towards the last things. Sure. And again, I want to be clear. If there is a a bishop or archbishop or cardinal in the United States who wants to make a stirring call for a coherent Catholic vision uh, for and from the heart of the church that has, you know, the kind of sweep and scope that can address the political issues of our time from a way that is not clearly winking at one side or the other, I'm all ears. Hey, I run a website. Yeah, exactly. Send and, me the text. Not clearly, I, not clearly winking at one side or another doesn't mean both sidesism. Yeah, both sidesisms. It doesn't mean ignore. It doesn't mean saying both sides have a good point. It doesn't mean ignore. On the contrary, it does not mean ignoring the national the gospel against the world, or the gospel. I would prefer. I, I know you're sort of doing Athanasius contramundum. I would sort of prefer the gospel for the world, but I know what I know what point you're driving at. Yes. <laughs> Well, there's a danger. The reason I point that out is because there's a danger in a moment like this, and now we're just sort of talking, but there's a danger in a moment like this of adopting. And I, I think this is part of the reason why the, why some of these voices are attractive. There's a danger in adopting a mentality that says everyone outside of the church wants to hurt the church, and we have to push back and fight back and protect our rights and protect ourselves and carve out a space for ourselves. And it And it becomes us versus the world in a way that is there is a value to protecting our religious liberty um, or arguing for our constitutionally protected religious liberty as citizens. But there, there is always a danger of a disposition that becomes more concerned with self-protection than self, than crucifixion. Okay. Which is at Golgotha. And, and especially then the proclamation of the gospel. One of the things that, that is most sort of key for me in my own Christian formation is the idea that my primary vocation, first is to know the Lord, but second is to proclaim him. And sometimes we can become more sort of preoccupied with protecting our spaces and our, and our own insularity than with that idea of um, all of those souls on both sides of stop the steal and the Biden thing. And all, all of those are souls that are made for eternity with God. And the primary thing for which we're here is to invite them into communion with God and, and, and to redemption through Christ and his church. I would agree with that. But I think my vision for strong action by the church in the current circumstances would be that the moments of conflict or opposition, for example, fighting for the freedoms of the church to, for example, allow people to come to mass uh, in a way that is at least commensurate with the freedom of people to go to casinos and play blackjack, uh, that this is a moment for evangelization, that this is not simply about making a dry legal argument of saying, well, why? Because it's our right. But to say, why? Because the church has the thing that the world needs now more than ever. There are 3,000 people a day dying or whatever it is of the coronavirus currently. And that the church has an answer and a witness to this, that in front of the the awful mystery of death and human suffering, the church has an answer that makes sense of this. It says, no, this suffering is purposeful. It can be redemptive, can 
point towards heaven, can point towards the eschatology, can point fundamentally towards the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and there's even something evangelical to saying we are subjects of a sovereign king, and that, sub, that subjectivity comes before all else because our transcendent identity and eternal identity precedes all other identities. And therefore, we simply are indifferent to the machinations of those who wish to separate us from the edicts of, of our transcendent king. There's even something evangelical about that. There, there's a danger when it turns into self-assertive identity politics, that sort of self-assertive rights-based identity politics. There's a huge difference between saying, oh, we're going to mass because it is the answer to what is happening right now, or we're going to mass because we're the subjects of the sovereign king and he commands us to worship, and saying, we're going to mass because it's our right. Right. That, so, that sort of right assertion, I think, undermines the the, the evangelical witness of who we are and where we are. So I was, um, <clears throat> I was, in, I was attempting to explain a canonical concept to a friend of mine who's studying canon law, and uh, he asked me a question about temporal goods in the church, and you know the concept of temporal goods and ownership and physical possession and money and all this stuff in the church, and the point book five indeed, every canonical student's. Worst enemy, but studied up, kids, because you're going to need book five out there in the real world. I love book five. I thought it was. I like book five too, but nobody ever pays attention to temporal goods. And book seven was where I really world. made my bones, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. You're a process man, Ed. I love me some procedural law. Anyway, uh, but the point I was trying to make to is that the church claims at the beginning of book five as its birthright, just nativum est, uh, the right to own, administer, alienate temporal goods. Mm-hmm. And there are several of these so called claim canons in the code usually at the beginning of the separate books, where the church articulates a right to itself as it is a perfect society, not perfect as in flawless, perfect as in entirely encompassing and, you know, having proper to itself all that is necessary to order itself as a society. And that whenever the church makes a claim about its birthrights, that the, the rights it has independent of any secular authority or earthly establishment it always has these rights for a purpose, and the purpose is always to spread the gospel. And so for me, the assertion of an identity or sovereignty for the church, which is not articulated in the same breath as the purpose of that right and sovereignty, which is fundamentally to announce the gospel, is the telling, I would say, this is going to come across as a little bit strong, but what the heck, it's the telling of a half-truth, that yes, the church is sovereign over and above and outside of any secular interference. Why? Because the church is serving a much higher purpose. The church is effecting the salvation of the whole world. And that is the first priority. This is what we mean when we say Salasani Marm Supreme Alex, that the salvation of souls is mm-hmm. the supreme law of the church, is that the evangelization comes first. Why? Because that is what is truly necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay, end of well, round. End of... <laughs> uh, one, I completely agree with you. Two... I'm sorry that you had to monologue last week because I know how little you enjoy monologuing. Yeah, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't get worked up you, unless you're here give, you know, pulling faces at me. No, I know. And I think that was a good conversation. I'm just teasing you. Well, Ed, we are running close to the end of time. And, um, and also in this podcast, we're running close to the end of time. <laughs> so we should be pre- prepared for both. Thank you. The first time I told that joke, you didn't laugh. So I told it again. Um, I love being uh, good at that joke. So there are a few things on our list left, and I am going to give you the next choice. We're only going to talk about the next thing for five minutes because I want to talk about a thing, and then you want to talk about a triviality. Um, but I'm going to give you the next thing. 
Are you suggesting that the thing I'm about to propose is a triviality? No, you want to talk about a serious thing. I want to talk about a serious thing, and then you want to talk about a triviality. Oh, sure, but that's that's pure, you know, Christmas cheer for our listeners who asked me <laughs> wanted to hear us discuss that. Um, I would like to talk about this. Is something I monologued a little bit about last week, but I, you know, I I would have liked to have you there to discuss it with, and I'm. You know, I'm glad that you're back and we can discuss it now because here's the interesting thing that happened while you were sleeping, J.D. Um, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, if, I don't want to say exonerated because it didn't even come to the point of any kind of uh, process, but rejected at the first canonical hurdle accusations of sexual abuse dating back to the 1970s against Charleston Bishop Robert Guglielmoni. That they basically dismissed them out of hand and said these are yeah. lacking. He any- was under. He had been under investigation for quite some time regarding these allegations of sexual abuse in the 1970s, and now he has been. Yeah, not exonerated, but not uh, not pre-exonerated. Yeah, pre-exonerated. That they said that the accusations were lacking any foundation. They lacked the semblance of truth. Right. Right. Um, which you know is as I as we've mentioned before that the lacking of a semblance of truth. The canonical standard there is they are manifestly false or frivolous. Right, exactly. It's the highest level of of uh, rejection you can sort of give an allegation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I find this fascinating. I mean, I'm pleased for for and on behalf of Bishop Guglielmoni. It's great whenever some an innocent person is, you know, said to be so in public, and I think that's great. But what I found particularly interesting about this was that the civil suit, at least according to the Diocese of Charleston, and as I understand it, the Diocese of Rockville Center, where Bishop Guglielmoni was a priest. And, was a priest and is alleged to have done these things. And uh, it was, you know, the Diocese of Rockville Center, as I understand it, who were acting on delegation from the CDF to, you know, sort of look into this stuff. Um, the civil suit is still pending, or at least. So the, he's still being sued. Well, or at least it's still possible he will be sued. I, it, mm-hmm. It's not clear to me whether the suit has actually been filed or if it's just. And this is something that's happened in other um, in other parts of New York and New Jersey, where a, a lawyer acting on behalf of a purported victim has given notice that they are going to There's sue. notice to file, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's interesting that the that the uh, that the canonical investigation was dropped while the civil suit remains, because often the canonical suit the canonical investigation sort of takes a back seat to all uh, civil civil and criminal machinations. Right, because the, you know, and it's this is the practice the practice of the CDF normally because they first of all don't want to have two parallel processes continuing at the same right. time. They don't want to have the canonical process uh, go first and then have confidential documents or witness testimony or things like that be available for subpoena by a civil court, which would then lead to assertions of sovereign immunity and all that sort of thing and, you know, create a mess that otherwise just doesn't need to exist if the civil process happens first and then the canonical process happens afterwards. But in this case, the CDF just seems to have said, no, this is complete. This this allegation is complete fiction and we're we're not going to be shy about saying so. And I think that is interesting because there is another bishop. in the same part of the world, or at least in allegations in the same part of the world, uh, also pertaining to the 1970s, who's... Well, Bishop DiMarzio. Bishop, Bishop DiMarzio of Brooklyn is Brooklyn. under investigation. Uh, Vosestes Lex Moody investigation, I think, being undertaken by Cardinal Dolan um, for a similar set of allegations. Yeah. And I, you know, it has been my understanding that the reason that we haven't heard anything about this investigation you know, in quite some time is because they were sort of applying this normal praxis of just sort of saying, well, we're not going to we're not going right. to publish any conclusions until the civil suit has been filed and either dismissed or resolved, which, again. But it, the 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 uh, the the not exoneration, but the 
the resolution of the investigation of the Bishop of Charleston seems to set or suggest the possibility of a new precedent, which is to say that the canonical investigation could be resolved even while the civil suit Absolutely. has the possibility of I don't know of, if this is going to create a new praxis, but this is certainly going – this certainly presents a new bar. If I were a bishop under investigation for uh, an accusation of sexual abuse that dated back 50 years – and had been adamant in public that this was absolutely a spurious allegation. There was nothing to it. it you know, wholeheartedly uh, um, asserted my innocence and was convinced that any process undertaken would clear my name. And I was under the impression that the, the canonical process and therefore the sort of moral authority of the church was refusing to exonerate me because they wanted, you know, they were willing to be held permanently hostage, as is, as I understand it, DiMarzio's case, where lawyers have been saying, well, we're going to file this suit. And they've been saying that for almost a year now. In fact, I think it's longer than a year now. They've been saying they're going to file, but not filing. Then his reputation is basically a hostage to this sort of endless delaying tactic. And if I were him, and again, I don't know the particulars of the investigation run by Cardinal Dolan, so I'm I'm speaking hypothetically here, but assuming uh, that that is the the reason for the delay. If I were Bishop Demarzi, I'd be saying, "What the heck?" Because there is now, in the public mind, anyway, a new ability and freedom to do this. The absolute precedent of we wait for the civil suit to resolve no longer holds, which suggests, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying, but this is the public perception it can give rise to that. Well, if Bishop Guglielmoni got an exoneration and I haven't got an exoneration, that means you must think there's something to it. And it, re- right. it risks creating a sort of uh, a fumo, a, a sort of smoke of suspicion around him, which I think it would be fundamentally unjust. That if the church has reached a determination that somebody is innocent, they should just say so. But again, this goes back to the constant conversation that we're having about Vosestes and um, the investigation of bishops for, for various uh, allegations, whether it's about personal misconduct or failure to deal with um, allegations against clergy in their diocese or things like that, which is if we want the process to be credible, the process has to be clear, transparent, consistent. And that means that you give equal weight and force and publicity to convictions as well as exonerations and that you right. won't get faith. You won't get public buy-in to the credibility of the process until you're treating them that way. I agree. I agree. Consistency, transparency, clarity. And, uh, and that's why we have... You know, we have tried to report on things which are, are not consistent, which are not transparent, and are, which are not clear. And at times, you know, it's interesting, the, push, the pushback to that has been ecclesiastics who have sort of said to us, who have raised to us a question that say, why are you reporting on these things? The church is trying to do the right thing here, and you're sort of, you know, nitpicking. But I, I don't think we are. I think that Vos Estes is a very good process, but procedural accountability only happens in the light. Yep. Justice in the dark is no justice at all. That's right. That's that's exactly right. Secret tribunals, whether under the auspice of a government um, or uh, ecclesiastical secret tribunals or secret or secret investigations that are subsequently sealed, um, generally only carry the kind of um, assurance that the track record of the people undertaking the investigations uh, lends to them. And the track record of the people undertaking the investigations right now ain't that good no yeah so and if you don't believe me i have a 450 page report on theodore mccarrick for you to read <laughs> so we shall so i think it's good to continue to raise that and i think you're right that um that uh um 
that if that is the case for the investigation of Bishop DiMarzio, then there is a strong argument in in his case to say, look, we need to resolve this. This idea of waiting for the civil suit is obviously no longer the order of the day. All right. One other thing that I want to talk about that happened whilst I was sleeping, um, and I want to sort of talk around it, I suppose, but... Um, uh, on December 10th, the Congregation for Catholic Education issued um, instructions on um, the governance, essentially the financial governance especially, but the structural and financial governance of ecclesiastical institutions of higher education, what, what, um, what could be called ecclesiastical faculties and pontifical universities. So um, n- this, th- these are not all Catholic universities. These are This um, is, for example, like, the Faculty of Canon Law at the Catholic University of America, not the School of Theology at the University of Dallas. Right, exactly. Or the, yeah, the the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, commonly known as the Angelicum. Or, or the, the EZA um, if you're studying canon law there. What's that? Or the EZA if you're studying canon law there. Commonly referred to as the EZA um, uh, or... Um, or other or other ecclesiastical faculties, and and actually the pontifical universities of Rome have any number of sort of aggregated institutions in various parts of the world that are sort of like affiliate institutions. But these are these are these are ecclesiastical institutions, um, not all Catholic universities. They have but the specific which, power of conferring degrees in the name of the Holy See in the sacred sciences, or are affiliated to organizations to, to institutions that do. So you know there are these the, there are these. Um, these institutions in some parts of the world that have what is fundamentally in affiliation with the pontifical universities that allows them to do the the um, academic preparation for um, degrees which are uh, granted, in fact, by their affiliated institution. Um, uh, but yeah, right. They have rectors or presidents that are appointed by the by the congregation, or at least confirmed by the congregation for Catholic education. They sort of depend on the congregation. These are not. Um, uh, all Catholic universities. This is a small subset of Catholic institutions of higher learning that are more closely connected to the church. So that's all you have to know. Um, and what you have to know about them is that the Holy See, the Congregation for Catholic Education, issued some norms related to their governance, their uh, their merger, their affiliation, their civil incorporation, I think uh, some things related to their financial administration, stuff like that. Um, now, that's pretty interesting, but it's very sort of interesting inside baseball. Um, why am I bringing it up? I'm bringing it up precisely for what these norms are not. These are governing norms related to a small subset of Catholic institutions of higher learning that do not touch on the governance, um, incorporation, or other issues related to most Catholic universities, and in fact, nearly all Catholic universities in the United States. And I think that is unfortunate, and here's why. Um, Catholic universities in this country have a history of being founded mostly by religious institutions at times when immigrants were coming to America and um, and there was a desire to provide them with um, a Catholic education at a time when the high, the institutions uh, the highest institutions of higher education in this country the Ivy League institutions and their and and their imitators were um, were uh, characterized by a decidedly Protestant ethos that ran contrary to the vision and worldview of the Catholic Church. Now, those same institutions are um, animated by an entirely secular ethos and worldview, which also runs contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church, but in an entirely different way. Uh, Still, at the time when the sort of historic Catholic universities of the United States were founded. They were founded as an alternative for Catholics and especially sort of the sons and, and, and daughters of immigrants um, to be able to receive a quality higher education that would allow them to enter um, professional fields and uh, uh, um, 
while at the same time having a, a Catholic formation. And in many cases, because Catholics, even Catholics whose families had risen to some prominence or wealth, were discriminated against in the admissions in admissions by the, the highest institutions of the land, the Ivy League. Um, those institutions, Catholic institutions, were primarily founded by um, Catholic religious orders, religious institutes, um, the Society of Jesus, the Holy Cross Fathers, the Congregation of the Holy Cross, uh, which is the Notre Dame thing. Um, uh, uh, others. <laughs> the Notre Dame thing? Um, the Notre Dame thing. These universities were apostolates of religious institutes. They were the the ministry of religious institutes. And then, Ed, um, what happened? Uh, they sold them, J.D. Well, one would wish. No. What they actually did was they, they would— But they didn't. They gave them away. They would create— uh, and transfer ownership and control and effective governance function of the universities to a sort of external body, a board of governors that, you know, was mixed between some religious, some lay, or in some cases all lay, and civilly incorporated and make it its own um, entity in law. And basically— Yeah, in the 60s and 70s, after the Lando Lake Statement, which was a statement of Catholic educators basically saying— um, academic freedom is the highest good of any university. Which is false. There was a move to – which is false. There was a move – Catholic formation is the highest good of any university. Um, but there was a move to – and people who, do, who who teach things which are contrary to the teachings of the faith should not have teaching positions at Catholic universities. But after the Land Lake statement, which was a false statement by the leaders of many Catholic universities, um, there was a move in the 60s and 70s to, to essentially sort of secularize – they called it professionalizing – but to secularize these universities by taking them from being the apostolates of religious institutes to becoming um, governed by – and owned in a certain way by these um, boards, these self-perpetuating boards that were a mix of lay people and religious. With the more or less explicit um, intention of putting them beyond the reach of church governance. And the consequence of that is that they are indeed, in many ways, beyond the reach of church governance. And uh, and and the other consequence of that is that um, buildings, beautiful buildings, beautiful churches, functional places, um, things which have a use, which would have a use for the sake of the mission of the gospel, um, have been um, turned over to um, civil corporations in such a way that they no longer are perceived to be subject to the governance of the Code of Canon Law or the and the Blessed Book Five on the, the possession, bishop. administration, and alienation of temporal goods. Right, that is exactly right, and therefore it's not just that the bishop, the diocesan bishop or the religious institute has ever less control over sort of what's being taught and what's being done and how, how students are being led and formed at the Catholic University, but they also have no control over the, these beautiful buildings and churches and functional things which have a mission for the sake of the gospel that were built with uh, like, you know, pennies of our day laborer immigrant, Catholic immigrant forebears that they... they, they built these things for the Catholic education and formation of their children with the hope that their children could be formed as Catholics and and elevated into a higher economic status in America. And the thing that happened in the 70s was this wholesale alienation by which those universities were transferred out of the governance, uh, the direct governance of the church. Given away. Given away. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. And... um, Don't do that again. (laughs) I'm I'm not in my head, um, and <laughs> uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, Catholic universities are, which you know are in fact recognized as Catholic in various ways, are no longer the apostolates of the religious institutes which founded them in most cases, and therefore no longer subject to the governance of those religious institutes, and also um, no longer have a check on either their Catholicity in 
academic formation, personal and human formation, spiritual formation, or the just use of their temporal goods. And I bring all that up because I think it's a tragedy. And, um, and I think it's a tragedy that the Holy See has never really taken on. Um, and I think it's a tragedy that diocesan bishops in the United States have never really taken on. We sort of just accepted this as the status quo. And there's a legitimate question, I think, about the perdoring, about, about the, the, the perdurance of many Catholic universities, which have lost the Catholic identity for which they were founded in the United States. And part of it is the fact that they have drifted outside of ecclesiastical governance. Well, insisting and holding on tooth and nail to the right to describe themselves as Catholic. As Catholic. So what should be done about that? I think we should suppress them. Well, the thing is, you think we should suppress them, but we really, well, you and I have no authority whatsoever over anything, but, um, I'm but being more to the point, I don't think we should suppress yeah, them. yeah, more to the point, even diocesan bishops really only have the authority to say they're not Catholic and to remove the blessed sacrament, but they generally don't do that because there's sort of, they, they, they sort of feel oftentimes intimidated by them or unable to control them. Um, and they would face giant pushback from the alumni of those universities who are oftentimes their donors and their employees and their supporters and other things like that. So generally speaking, Catholic universities in this country are able and free to do whatever it is that they want. Well, in my mind, in the good, the good news is that many Catholic universities that are in that situation are dwindling in funds and students, and the current economic situation may well accelerate that. Why am I glad that these things may well be going out of business? Because it does not seem to me that in many cases they're serving the mission of the gospel anyhow. And it does seem to me that there are new uh, opportunities and new ways in which we can think about Catholic formation and ca at the level of higher education, both intellectual formation and spiritual and human formation. Things, um, things like affiliated, uh, affiliated institutes of... Um, of, of formation connected to both to secular universities and to Newman centers, um, things like endowed chairs of Catholic formation at universities and um, smaller, newer and reformed and renewed Catholic universities that take seriously the commitment to Catholic formation that is uh, expressed in the idea of university and ex cordia ecclesia, the church's um, instruction on Catholic universities. So anyway, all I'm really saying is it really kind of triggered triggered me. God, it really kind of caught my attention when uh, when the Congregation for Catholic Education made some new rules about um, about these sort of closely linked affiliated institutions because it sort of feels like making a rule for um, the uh, making a rule for the brother who stayed home while kind of ignore which is a good rule an important rule while kind of ignoring the serious problem of the the universities still prodigal. And um, I just hope for some means of resolution of that, although I'm not optimistic about it. That's all. Fair. Okay. <laughs> it's a real thing, Ed, that I really think matters. I, I, there, are, there are some Catholic so-called universities that I would dearly love to see um, bishops take a firmer line with and uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, threaten, their, threaten their ability to refer to themselves as Catholic in a more... Uh, you know, whatever way. There are other universities that are historically prominently and publicly Catholic that I think are turning out some excellent stuff. Yeah, and doing really good you know, stuff and, and doing really good and deeply Catholic stuff. For example, the University of Notre Dame. Love me, please. Love me. <laughs> some of them are painted with a broad brush. You know, Notre Dame is a place that has many good things happening and many things that I think are problematic happening all at the same time and in the same place. And sometimes, you know, and too often I think there's sort of um, an easy trope to say, well, no, nothing, you know, can anything good come out of South Bend? Um, yeah, in fact, I think there are good things coming out of South Bend. While at the same Lots time, it seems things. to me that there are aspects of South Bend that are needed in need of serious um, 
both reform and renewal. But lots of good things come out of Steubenville, too. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Okay. All right. That was my little soapbox. What do you want to talk about now, Ed? J.D., for the edification of our listeners, I would like us to discuss, please. We will probably not have another episode before Christmas. That is why you're doing this. I am. I, Th- this is our Christmas episode, I suppose. On, on the... On the ho, ho, fearful ho. assumption that this may prove to be our Christmas episode, I threw out last week that if I were forced to monologue again, I would probably discuss my opinions on the, you know, five or ten best Christmas films. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to monologue about that, but I would like to throw it open for the two of us to discuss. JD, let's see if we can come to a consensus Christmas film top five. Do you think we can do that? Okay. We, I think we can try. I want to say that I did not have forewarning about this. Um, you shouldn't need to think hard about this. I, okay. I could, well, I could discuss some... this on July 1st anytime you like. I mean, this is I know. Tough. First of all, I want to say the the discussion about Christmas movies so is so often a discussion about Die Hard. And I've never seen Die Hard. I don't care about Die Hard. I don't know if it's a Christmas movie or not. I, I, I think I have a visceral, like, Will, tendency to avoid the Die Hard thing because I hate cliches and um, and I don't like participating in them. So I don't know anything about Die Hard. I don't care about it. But I think even people who think it's a t- Christmas movie would be hard-pressed to argue it's a top five Christmas movie, so it doesn't have to be a part of our discussion today, right? Uh, well, Die Hard is unanswerably a Christmas movie. It, it, sure, it I is, It Whatever. takes place, the entire thing takes place in ho, the subject. Oh, yeah, right. There's cool. jingle bells as background music throughout the whole yeah. thing. It takes place at a Christmas party. It's the story of a man trying to get home to his family for the holidays. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. it is a Christmas And show. remember, remember when that French girl is like, where's Santa? And then Bruce Willis is like, Santa's dead, baby. No, I don't. Okay, different Bruce Willis movie. Oh, mercy. okay. Um, I, D- Die Hard would probably be in my top five because... Um, well, because the missus and I watch it absolutely every year. At well, Christmas. it won't be in our consensus top five because I don't care about it. Well, okay, fine. And I don't like doing the Die well, Hard. All right, thing. so you don't. It feels it feels somewhat gauche the whole Die Hard. I, thing. I okay, that's fine. I, I I'm not I'm not going to fight you. I'm just saying don't start with a negative. Start with a positive. I'm a snob, Ed. I'm a snob. So I just... get snobby. Tell me what you want. Okay. Well, can we agree to begin at the beginning with Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street? Which one? The original or the Richard Attenborough remake? Oh, gosh. Why are you even asking me that? The original. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Great. Okay, wonderful. Miracle on 34th Street makes the list. Yes. Can we agree about Muppet Christmas Carol? Absolutely. Muppet Christmas Carol is nailed down the top three. The best Christmas Carol, right? It is the best Christmas Carol. No question. Muppet Christmas Carol nailed down top three for me. Highly significant moment, not just in cinema, but in narrative storytelling in any medium. Um, yeah, it's and, and, and is it weird that it's probably Michael Caine's best performance? I would say it's certainly the performance in which he he demonstrates his range to greatest effect. Um, he really sells the transformation of Scrooge uh, from a from you know a, a miserly old person to someone who's truly animated by the spirit of the season. I think that he he really sells that the the moments of pathos as he's confronted with the ghosts of his own Christmas past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think were deeply affecting. Um, anytime the electric mayhem is playing, I'm I'm there for that. So the musical score and accompaniment is excellent. Uh, and look, the book begins. Marley was dead in the first place, right? If Marley get, was dead to begin with. To begin with, thank you. If we get two Marleys, haven't we already gotten twice the thing? Uh, you know what, Staller and Waldorf, as the the ghosts of the Marleys, fantastic 
Fantastic yes, casting indeed. decision. Excellent. Okay, so we've got we're, we've got two. Yeah. We're moving right along. Okay. Ah, um, I like saw what suggest- you did there. <laughs> I've got some more suggestions, but perhaps you do too. All right. Uh, could we? I'm gonna. Okay. This is this is a personal choice. You are probably gonna push back on it, but I have to at least make the case, and it's a personal case. Home Alone. Oh yeah, totally. Okay, Home Alone. You're from the Home Alone town, right? I, so my, f- I was born on the. I mean, you're English, but you lived in the Home Alone. Yeah, town. I was born on the extreme uh, north side of Chicago. That was sort of my first address was in Rogers Park, but we moved to the town in which Home Alone and various other films by the same director were filmed. Like I, um, there, I grew up in that town. The. The Anglican. The funny thing is, the interior shots are of one church, which is very clearly Catholic. Mm-hmm. But the exterior shots of the church are actually an Anglican church down in the middle of town, on the other side of town. Like I know all of the geography. Home Alone was filmed there when I was, I think, more or less of an age with Macaulay Culkin when they were filming it. Like I, I can yeah, remember I think Macaulay Culkin's our age, which yeah, is kind of weird. I can remember when they were making the movie in the town. Like it is, like it is so. It is so hard for it's impossible for me to differentiate watching Home Alone without basically watching a home movie. That at one totally. point when he's you know when he steals the toothbrush and he's running out and he runs across the yeah, ice skating yeah. rink, um, in the crowd that he's pushing through, my second grade teacher is in there. Nice. I can clearly recognize you know, Mrs. They filmed, McHugh. They filmed Pete and Pete in my town. Did they? That's really cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, Macaulay Culkin is uh, two years older than me and three years older than you. Yeah, I, but I remember yeah. when they were making it. Like I, it is. Yeah, Home Alone for me is. It is. It, sure. It's not just it. a Christmas film. It is a Christmas film about my childhood. You got it. Okay, Charlie Brown. Did your family ever go on a Christmas vacation to Paris and leave you? No, uh, I. Did your the first time I ever got on an airplane was when we were moving to London. The, Fair enough. Yeah. Charlie Brown Christmas. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. Look, dude, we are already. It at contains. Four. It contains the Luke Gospel. I mean, what more do you? It has the yeah, best. No, I mean, no. I will listen yeah. to the Charlie Brown Christmas Vince Guaraldi trio yeah. soundtrack in my car from you know basically the first Sunday of Advent on, right through to the Epiphany. Absolutely. Okay, I'm just going to give you a couple that I don't think you're going to take, but I'm going to suggest them for number the five slot. We're, we're four for four here, so I'm feeling really good. This consensus top five was turned out to be yeah, very yeah. easy. Winona Ryder, Little Women. Absolutely not, and you are yeah, being absurd. First of all, Edward, Winona Ryder, no. Yeah, I knew Little you were Women, say it. no. Edward Scissorhands. Is that a Christmas film? Yes, Edward Scissorhands is a Christmas film. I mean, I know. That, okay, so uh, cards on the table here. I don't care for Richard Burton films generally. I think he's weird and silly and way, way, way oversold. I mean, he. Yeah, is, I, I would agree with all that, but Edward Scissorhands is a classic. Plus, I'm, plus, if you're not going to give me Winona Ryder, Little Women, you're going to give me Winona Ryder, again, um, Edward Scissorhands. The, the primary purpose of Tim Burton films, as I understand it, is to provide vehicles for weird actors and actresses that I would prefer not to watch their films. I, I, okay. But no, I'm not going to give you Edward Scissorhands, and I'm certainly not going to give you The Nightmare Before Christmas, because The Nightmare Before Christmas... Do you know the movie The Snowman? The, I don't, the Snowman? No, I don't think I do. Which one okay, is well then you're not gonna. It's like um, it's based on a Raymond Briggs book, and it's it came out I think in '82. It's a nice little movie. It's like 40 minutes or something like that, but it's a nice little Christmas okay. movie. It's not. It doesn't have any. Look, we have like, to talk about the sort of big three, the the granddaddies, um, none of which have featured so far, and we may not choose to give the a Christmas st- Prince. What? Christmas Prince? You mean that when you say the big three, you mean A Christmas Prince, A Christmas Prince 2, and then Home for the Holidays or something? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh. I was going to talk about the big three being the the original Jimmy Durante, Frosty the Snowman, the claymation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Boris Karloff's The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. I like all of those, but I just realized we forgot something hugely important. A Christmas Story? 
Uh, yes, but we also forgot White Christmas. So White Christmas is still in the mix, and I was going to make that as a as my final pitch for the five spot. In fact, I, I I'm going to give it to you. I love all those things you said, but White Christmas needs to be there. Okay. Well, actually, what I was going to say is of the of the big three, I would I would go into bat hardest, or at least list as a pinch hitter, the Grinch, because again, the score and the you know the the yeah, okay. the, the visual. You want to list it as an alternative? Alternate? No, I, I think White Christmas is definitely going to be my pick, but I'm just saying if I had to have a pinch hitter in reserve, it would probably be The Grinch. Frosty the Snowman never did anything for me. I find the song irritating. Yeah, and, and arguably it's not even a Christmas movie. It's a snowman it's a non-denominational holiday. Yeah, that's, it's a holiday movie. Yeah. yeah, And The Claymation Rudolph, I didn't like it. Uh, it's been a very long time, but when I start watching it, I, I then I immediately start thinking about there's some there was some sort of mad TV claymation lampooning of it, um, in which Rudolph like ha- had some sort of psychological break, and it wasn't even that funny. It's just that I saw it at a time when I was highly impressionable and too young to be watching mad TV, and so it stuck in my craw, which is exactly what you know um, we were warned television would, would do. do when it was too. So it's true uh, that bad television sticks in your craw. But anyway, long story short, I can only think of that. Fair enough. Okay, I, I'm surprised. You remember surprised. Mad TV, that stupid SNL knockoff? No, no, I don't know that one. Oh, maybe you're right. I'm amazed. Thing. We've, I, I thought for sure, I thought we'd, we'd struggle to get to a consensus three, but we got five, no problem. Well done, Ed. I'm very proud of you. We are, we're great collaborators, and, uh, and uh, this demonstrates that. <laughs> yes. And so, dear listeners, Merry Christmas to you. Be assured of our prayers in this Christmas time season, and Ed, Merry Christmas you. See you on the other side, boss. CNA Editor's Desk is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. I'm your host and CNA's Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, CNA's DC Editor, Ed Condon. Ho, 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 everybody.